Well, uh, Re- the book of Revelation, it has 22 chapters, and uh, we are in chapter 17, so we're getting closer to the end. Today we'll finish chapter 17. Chapter 17 is one big vision of the great prostitute, but it has the first six and a half verses that are the vision itself, and the rest of it is just explaining the vision. So last week we looked at the vision itself, and today we're going to look at the second part, which explains the vision. Um, But before we do that, I want to review a little bit of where we've been and what we've been talking about, because it's very important in order to understand what we talk about today. So I want to go over three things. The first thing is I want to review with you the stages of the future that we have seen as we're going through the book of Revelation. The four stages. Um, And some of these are long stages, thousands of years, and some are very short stages. So these are, um, I don't know how, if stages is the best word, but there are four steps. The first is the present age that we live in today, between Christ's first coming and his second coming, during which the good news of Christ is preached to the ends of the earth, and that is accompanied by many sufferings. This age will be followed by a brief time when Satan is unleashed and provokes a great onslaught against the people of God. In the end, this onslaught will even appear to be successful. Like when one team in a game is way ahead and the clock is ticking down to the end and it feels like the game is over. However, death, I'm sorry, defeat will be snatched out of the jaws of victory as Jesus returns and rescues his beloved overthrowing all wicked powers. So that's the third. And then the fourth is the resulting great reconstruction of the heavens and the earth and the great wedding day of Christ and his beloved bride, the true church, which will go on forever. So that's the first thing I want to review. The second thing I'd like to review is the, the trinity of evil that we saw painted for us in chapters 12 to 15. We were introduced to three characters that work together. One is Satan himself who comes in the form of a dragon. He's introduced in chapter 12. And second of all, there's a character called the beast. And then there's a second beast who comes to be called the false prophet. And these three work together against Christ and against his people and they are um, on the same team. Last week we then were introduced to yet another character that works with these these uh, dark forces and that is the great prostitute of Revelation 17 and this woman is the bait the tool of Satan and the beast to deceive and lure the world away from Christ 
She is the allure of this world, the promises of the world, the security of this world, the thrills and the entertainment of this world. And the Apostle John, who's the one writing this and who's the one seeing all these visions, he, he reacts to her in a way that's important for us to note. It says, when I saw her, the great prostitute, I marveled greatly in 17.6. It's actually very similar to what we read in chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, when we're told that the whole earth marveled at the beast. Same Greek word. So the world marvels at the beast. John marvels at the woman. So what does the woman, so why does the world marvel at the beast and even worship the beast? Well, it's definitely not because of the beast's good looks, his many heads and horns. No, they marvel at the beast because of the beast's apparent power to take down the lamb himself, Jesus Christ. They worship the beast saying in, in uh, 13.4, it says they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? You see, they, they are very impressed by his power. Who can fight against the beast? But not John. As a believer, John would never marvel at the beast. He does marvel at the woman because of her attractiveness. Thus we see how the prostitute is used by the beast to lure, to seduce, and to entice even those who believe in Christ, if possible. So let's read our passage today. We're not going to read the vision, but we're going to read the explanation of the vision. And we'll read the whole verse 7 to begin with. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? This is right after John was marveling at the woman. Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is... The other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth. That is an eighth. Um, they have the seven kings. He's an eighth king. It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. 
they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So as you might have noticed, even though the passage promises first of all, to tell us about the woman. It actually ends up telling us more about the beast that the woman was riding on than it actually does about the woman. So let's first start and think about what it tells us about the beast and what we've already learned about the beast before this. The beast we've seen seems to represent the wicked power of the state using government to oppose Christ. This is antichrist in both senses of the word, both as opposer of Christ and as imitator of Christ, counterfeit Christ. We see this last, this counterfeiting of Christ in the beast's comeback, which seems to be an imitation of Christ's resurrection when Jesus came back from the dead. For the beast is described in verse 8 as one who was and is not and is to come. The is not part, talking about some apparent defeat or apparent death. This reminds us of what was said about the same beast when he was first introduced in Revelation 13.3 which says its mortal wound was healed. So a mortal wound means a wound that kills. His mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled. So what was this resurrection of the beast or this comeback of the beast? Well, it seems to be twofold. It involves, first of all, the fact that he's still remaining active after his defeat at the cross. But also, it seems to involve his return to power at the end of history when he's briefly unleashed just before the return of Christ. It seems this apparent resilience of the beast leads the world to be super impressed by the beast. The dwellers on earth will marvel to see the beast because he, it was and is not and is to come. Revelation 17 also tells us that the beast will eventually reign over the whole world because all the kings of the earth 
will give him their power and yield it to him. And they'll all make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them. As it says in verse 8, the beast is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And verse 11, as for the beast that was and is not, it goes to destruction. Okay, so let's talk about some of the difficulties, some of the weird puzzles that are going on here. And if you don't understand this very well, um, not only is that normal, but I would think that uh, there'd be something wrong with you if you did. Because this is strange and difficult stuff. In verse 7, the angel said to John, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. In other words, let me explain to you the things in this vision. Well, sometimes the answer to a question just raises more questions. And it seems to be what's going on here. There are three big puzzles in this passage. There's lots of puzzles in every passage in Revelation. But the three biggest puzzles in this particular passage. Three real eye-crossing puzzles. First of all, it's verse 9 and 10. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. What in the world is that about? Then there's verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not... This one's even stranger. It was an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And then verse 12, the third puzzle. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Now, it's because of these puzzles that verse 9 tells us this calls for a mind of wisdom. In other words, God has provided the tools so that a wise person who is godly and knowledgeable of the scriptures will be able to understand it. But don't expect it to be easier, easy to figure this out. There have been many attempts, but let's go through these now one at a time. Many attempts, for instance, to explain the seven kings in verse 10. But mainly it has led only to arguing and disputing. No broad consensus has emerged. And again, I think that they're barking up the wrong tree because they're trying to attach each of these kings to a specific historical person. I think the seven mountains and the king, seven kings represent the oppressive power of world governments through the ages. Governments which act as if they're God and which persecute people which do not, who do not submit to them. I think the point is that there will be long series of dominant earthly kingdoms, many of which have already come, that's the five 
one of which is presently in power, that's the one who is, and the final one, which is still coming in the future, will assume greater power than all the rest, though its reign will be brief. Now the second one, in verse 11. The beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. It seems to me this is referring to the final and ultimate Antichrist, the political ruler who will rise at the end of history. His will, his will be the final empire in the series of human empires, but also it will stand out as on a level all by itself, above all the rest. So he's one in the series, yes, but he's also beyond all the others. The most satanic of them all. It will be as if the beast himself has become king and ruler of the world, though his reign will be brief, and in the end he will be thrown down and destroyed. And that's what I think it is talking about when it talks about the beast that was and is not. It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And now to the seven kings who are still to come in verse 12. These seem to refer to all the rulers on earth at the time of the rise of the Antichrist. They all join in support of the Antichrist, but their authority doesn't last long because the Lamb throws them all down. Now, we ought to struggle to understand these puzzles. They're not here just to, uh, to take up space in the Bible. But we also ought not to be so absorbed in trying to figure them out that we miss the very important and yet plain things in the passage as well. And there are three theological truths here which are just golden. And it would be a crime for us to ignore them. So let's talk about these three theological truths in this passage that are plain and glorious. First of all, verse 8, which refers to the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Well, this implies that there are other dwellers on the earth whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now, the book of life is mentioned over a dozen times in the Bible. This book contains the names of all those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be adopted as God's children, as it says in Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. But of course, not everyone's name is written in the book of life. That's why at the end of the book of Revelation, we're told that if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20:15, And that only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life shall ever come into the city of God, the new Jerusalem. That's 21, 27. I still get emotional 
thinking that even before I believed in Christ, when I was an atheist railing against God and opposing his people, my name was already written in the Lamb's book of life. That's grace. The next theological truth that I'd like to draw out, we find in verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. This, in one sense, is the basic message of the book of Revelation. God is going to triumph, and those who are faithful will triumph with him. There is and is going to be lots of conflict, lots of persecution. That's what we can expect. However, no matter how dark the days get, the good news is that in the end, the Lamb of God will conquer all of his foes, is able to do this because he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. But in conquering, the Lamb of God is not alone. There are others with him. It says the Lamb will conquer them and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. These are actually those we referred to earlier who have their names written in the book of life from the world's foundation. Here it is said that those with the Lamb are called and chosen and faithful. They are called to be his people. Why are they called? They are called because before the creation of the world they were chosen to be God's people. And they are faithful. Are they called and chosen because they're faithful? No. They are faithful because they're called and chosen. They are enabled to remain faithful throughout all the struggles, the temptations, and the pressures. And because of this, they get to stand with their Savior as he conquers and stand with him in triumph as they celebrate him. And he will commend them for their faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servants. Now why would they be commended for doing something God empowered them to do? My friends, if people were only commended for things they did by themselves without God's empowering, no one would ever get commended. But God allows us to share in his glory. This too is grace. And now the third theological point that I want to draw out here is from verse 17 which says God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So here we find God putting it into the hearts of the ten kings to unite with one another in their decision to hand over their authority to the beast. Why would God provoke 
these wicked kings to yield their power to the beast, to the Antichrist? Well, because he wants to destroy them all. And he wants to start that by getting them to begin destroying each other. And why can God get kings to do what he wants them to do? Because he is the king of kings. And he's also the Lord of the heart. He doesn't force people to do things they don't want to do. Rather he, as it says, puts it into the hearts to carry out his purpose. Now this isn't the only place in scripture that talks like this about God working in people's hearts to accomplish his will. For instance, in Deuteronomy 2.30, it says, Sihon, the king, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into our hand. Joshua 11.20, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction. Ezra 6.22 The Lord turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. The fact is the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wants. Proverbs 21.1 But why is this here? What is the advantage of it saying this? Why doesn't it just say the ten kings were of one mind and handed their royal power over to the beast? Why does God's involvement have to be mentioned? Well, because on that day when the ten kings of the earth or the many kings of the earth unite together against the Lord's people, there will be great temptation for those poor people to shift into full-blown panic mode and great pressure to compromise with the beast. And part of this pressure will be that many fellow so-called Christians will capitulate and urge the rest to join them. It will seem like suicide to refuse. It will also seem like refusing will mean subjecting your dear loved ones to torture and death. God knows that on that day his people will need help. In the face of that kind of pressure, God wants his dear children to know for sure that not only is he going to intervene and rescue them, but that he is actually bringing all this to pass so that he might accomplish his holy will. When they're pinned against the Red Sea, with the army of Egypt bearing down on them, God wants them to know what's really happening there, so that they can wait in trust that not only is God going to part the waters and make a way to escape, but that God is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he's there in the first place. Why would God unite all the wicked armies against the saints at all? 
prevail, it's because he desires to accomplish one great final victory against his foes right when they thought that they were about to triumph so that all of his people on that day might worship with shouts and songs and great celebration honoring and glorifying the Lamb just as we saw portrayed two chapters ago in chapter 15 verses 1 to 4. A couple more things before we close. In this passage, two forces of evil actually end up in conflict with each other. The very great prostitute that that had been used for the purposes of Satan and the beast, now they turn on the prostitute and destroy her and devour her. And in this we can see two great principles. First of all, sometimes God uses his enemies to destroy each other. We see this all through the Bible. So we shouldn't be surprised to see it happening here at the end of history. And interestingly, if you want to do some homework, Jesus seems to have expected this as well. Read carefully his words in Mark 3, 23-26. But second of all, the conflict between the beast and the prostitute also shows us that Satan is really not interested in giving people real pleasure. He uses pleasure to entrap them. But once they're entrapped, he withdraws all pleasure and tortures them. Like a fisherman, he doesn't let the fish enjoy the fading pleasure of finishing the worm. He rips the hook with the worm out of his mouth, throws the fish in the bucket, and goes after another fish. If there's any uh, fishermen here who feel like this is saying something cruel about fishermen, I don't mean to offend you. I'm just talking about Satan. Okay. Here's the words of Greg Beale. It seems here that at the end, Satan will no longer need to use the appeal of the woman any longer and will rule by sheer power. The day of disguise will be over. Satan will demolish pleasure altogether. And all will see that he was not truly out to give pleasure, but only to use a pleasure disguise to lure men away from the true pleasure. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his screw tape letters. In one sense, you see, Satan hated the prostitute all along. He doesn't like having to give mankind any taste of pleasure. But in order to entrap them, he allows it. But once the victim is caught, the trap is discarded almost with an attitude of resentment because Satan actually hates human pleasure. Again, Greg Beale. It's almost as if he has hated having to allow men to enjoy all this pleasure. 
and rejoices in the day he can withdraw it and do what he really wanted to do all along consume and destroy without mercy and without pleasure it's as if the fisherman hates the fish so much that he hates the fish that he hates the fact that he has to let him enjoy the bait for one brief moment in order to catch him Now, in closing, in Psalm 23, the world's most famous and most favorite psalm, in the middle in verse 5, it says, You prepare a banquet before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a banquet before me in the presence of my enemies. And we see here in the book of Revelation this very truth illustrated in such vivid ways. God is calling us here to enjoy the banquet of his love, the banquet of his promises of what's going on and what is going to happen even though we are surrounded and targeted by vicious, hateful enemies. And someone might say, well, you know, I can't enjoy a banquet if I have to eat it in the presence of my enemies. But don't you see? Your enemies are part of what makes the banquet so rich and meaningful. We can't say to God... I can't enjoy the world where you've placed me as long as there is danger or evil around. The whole point is that peace comes from God, not from the world. Peace does not come from our circumstances. Peace does not come from the absence of troubles. Peace is something that passes human understanding. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And God glorifies himself and he glorifies his peace that he gives to mankind by giving it to people who live in a dangerous and scary world. And when they are able to know peace even in the midst of their enemies and enjoy the banquet of his love and enjoy the banquet of his promises in that context, then the whole world says, wow. What is the reason for the hope that you have within you? And it gives us a chance to tell others about how we can have peace. Well, that's the end of chapter 17. And now we turn to the Lord's Supper where we enjoy this banquet that Christ has offered us even in the context of of a difficult, stressful, burdensome world. And yet we know the joy of the banquet that points us to the greater banquet we will, once enjoy, we will one day enjoy on the final day. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our true food. And Lord, when we eat of you, we never have to hunger. And when we drink of you, we never have to thirst. 
please, O Lord, allow us to drink deeply of the living water and the true food today. And dear Lord, we pray that you would go with us because we are broken and we are afraid and we are burdened and we need your help to sustain us and uphold us and help us, dear Lord, to be able to know joy even when everything around us seems to be falling apart. Thank you that you have told us in so many places like this one today that nothing is happening apart from your perfect control. That you are bringing all things to pass in a glorious way. Help us to be faithful. Feed us now of the sacrament, O Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus.